What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Hey, everybody. We are just delighted to kick off this conversation. And it, it, it is fun to be among friends and people who are part of our community working towards a, a, a brighter future for what San, San Antonio can look like, what it can look like for our kids every day. And um, I get the, the chance to work alongside the Overland Partners team. And we've got Overland Partners strong representation here, uh, Rick Archer, Adam, and Benjamin. And um, we are delighted to partner with Jen and Miss Education um, because uh, education is uh, transformational. It's, uh, I love the stories as we were getting into this. Uh, whether your, your dad was a principal, coach, and teacher, uh, or your parents were uh, supportive of the principal uh, ringing, ringing your neck every once in a while. Um, it's all played a huge role in all of our lives, and we all want to see uh, it continue to play a huge role in the, the, the lives and future of our kids. Uh, quick background on me, how I came to this work. I've worked in education in San Antonio for a little over the last decade, um, and I've had the privilege of partnering with folks on this call at various times. Um, towards a brighter future. Um, and uh, at Overland and my work with the team at Overland, uh, the focus is on really unlocking the embedded potential, transforming the ways that communities work together, um, and sometimes also designing buildings. And um, it, it's been fun to work alongside the team. Um, and we wanted to have a, a pretty relaxed format here uh, of our friends and community members uh, to talk about what's happening today what it means for the future, and what it is that we can do to realize that future. Um, and so uh, this is a virtual happy hour format. Um, I'm going to uh, kick it over to Jen here in a minute. Uh, we'll kind of talk about what that means. But we are delighted for folks to be on the call and engage on the call. Um, and it's going to be recorded and released um, afterwards as a podcast. So uh, you'll be able to uh, go back over, uh, relive the memories. Um, this isn't just a one-time deal. Um, and, uh, and listen over and over to uh, Roland's great jokes and Mike's uh, stunning uh, data facts. Um, so I'm setting you both up. Uh, please, please, over-deliver on this one. Um, as we go through, everybody can uh, chat. Um, if you have a question, if you have a comment, um, we'll thread that uh, throughout. Um, our panelists are going to be Roland, Benjamin, Amanda, um, and Mike Villarreal, uh, and they'll get a chance to introduce themselves in just a minute. Uh, but we want this to be interactive. Uh, the, the mic is going to be uh, with our panelists first, with Jen and I facilitating. Um, 
but then we're going to open it up. Uh, you can chat comments in the chat box. You can raise a hand and we'll uh, engage your questions and comments along the way. Jen, you want to go ahead and kind of give us the, the format and overview? Yep. I think you almost about covered it. I think if you are not engaged in speaking, you can definitely stay muted just so we have the best sound quality. It is being recorded. We're going to try real hard to keep this to a 90-minute session. Um, we'll, we'll do a good job of watching the clock. We don't want to interrupt your evenings too, too much. Um, we'll do a quick whip around of some question answering, and then we'll save some space for any questions that come up in the chat box. Um, other than that, we're going to get started. Um, I know Joel gave a quick background. I'm Jen. I have worked in education in San Antonio for the past 20 years. Um, it's kind of fun. I start my first year teaching was the 1999-2000 school year. So I always know how long I've been doing this by based on what year it is. So 2020, 20 years. Um, I started out a fifth grade teacher and then became an instructional coach and then an assistant principal, and then an elementary school principal, and now I coach principals in their school design year, which has been actually, you know, I always thought my my coaching was my favorite job. Um, if I had to pick, if I was hard pressed to pick which job I liked the most, I always said it was the instructional coaching role. Um, I think it's been trumped by the coaching the principal's role. I think reimagining what school should look like and could look like it's just a really fun, deep dive for me. There are no real um, boundaries when it comes to what we can do in school. And I, I don't know that I had that perspective until I stepped out of the principal role. Um, and so it's just been a real joy for me to get to watch people reimagine what schools can look like. And I think this context that we're living in is like the perfect space for that. Although it's hard and it's gritty and it's messy and we're having to redo things every single day, it's like the perfect opportunity for us to ask ourselves what should and could education look like. And how are we going to manage that? What do we do differently? Um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled at the panelists that are with us. I'm going to give them a second to introduce themselves and just tell you a little bit about who they are and what brings them to the work that they do. Um, so we'll kick it off with Mr. Toscano. I've been in education 25 years. Uh, I started uh, student teaching here in East Central ISD, and I also drove a bus and substitute taught uh, before becoming a middle school science teacher. Um, did a little coaching along the way, became a high school uh, science teacher, um, and my career evolved in, uh, into the administrative side of things, and I became an assistant principal at the high school, a principal of a middle school, high school principal here in East Central for almost a decade, and then uh, I've been in the superintendency, I believe this is my sixth year, and uh, so I've been uh, raised here in the East Central community. Uh, this is where I graduated from high school, uh, but also raised professionally, and it's been a blessing and a journey, and I think that this year uh, I'm learning more than I've ever learned, and I'm excited uh, probably more than I've ever been about the work that we're doing and what the future of education is going to look like for our children. Thank you. Ben, I'm just going through my little grid on my screen, so Ben, you're up next. Thanks, Jenny. Um, well, you now know um, education runs deep in, in my blood. Um, growing up, San Antonio native, and my dad for a while was an educator. He was principal, he was a teacher, he was a coach, and uh, just kind of instilled that love of learning. 
uh, inside of all of us and certainly impacted my life. I know impacted my sister's life um, and that of my, my other brother and sister as well. Um, so I am, um, I'm an architect at Overland Partners and um, my, my passion project, my focus is pre-K through 12 education. And I um, just wanted to echo my sister's words, you know, uh, it's a wonderful time to reimagine what education, what learning environments could and should look like. Um, we've got an opportunity to look at, uh, look at our world through a fresh lens, through the lens of optimism and uh, a lens of potential for what really could be. And um, so I'm certainly delighted to be a part of this panel. I'm really thankful that I get to be in the same room, even virtually, um, with all of these great minds, great thinkers. And, um, and yeah, and I, I also have to ask for a little bit of grace. Um, I'm here with my two sons, um, Daniel and Caleb. Uh, they are eight and four years old and just got done with their school day. Uh, not too long ago. So um, they're a bit rambunctious in another room, but I closed the door. So they'll be in there for a little bit, but I'm going to stay on mute. <laughs> Just throw some food in their direction. They'll be fine. <laughs> they already came in asking for a snack and I had to tell them, yes, 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 go, go. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Amanda, how about you? Sure. And I'm in the same boat. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old and I tell them to be very quiet and I feel like they're practicing their opera skills downstairs because <laughs> I can hear them. Um, but yeah, I'm Amanda McMichael and I'm uh, originally from the Valley, but I came up here to San Antonio to attend UTSA. And um, I, like Jen, have been in education in San Antonio for 20 years. Um, I taught in Northside and Alamo Heights, Creaky for SA, and I'm the former director of Will Smith Sioux School, which is the largest nature-based preschool in the country. And, um, you know, I, I agree with all of the panelists is that this is an unusual time in our lives, but it's um, uplifting to know that it's also a time for us to reconnect with our families um, and also nature. I was trying to get my son a bike not too long ago, and I couldn't find any. Everybody's out riding bikes. Everyone's at the park. So to me, that's the, the silver lining in all of this. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, Dr. Villarreal. Good evening. Uh, so glad to be with all of y'all. Uh, my name is Mike Diriel. I'm an assistant professor at UTSA in the College of Education. I also run the Urban Education Institute at UTSA. We are an applied uh, research organization uh, focused on making a difference in being positive partners with school districts in our San Antonio community. We want to help raise the uh, amount of uh, informed conversation and dialogue about what works uh, in education for our students here and uh, break that down by different student subgroups and understand how what works also varies by the, the circumstances that uh, students find themselves in. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I also want to point out just real quickly that all of us, each one of us that's already introduced ourselves, are also parents this school year. So I feel like we have like this dual mindset of we're thinking about education from a systems approach, but we're thinking about education from a really unique individual perspective of watching our kids and teaching on a scratch that we're not teaching our kids. 
and watching our students learn online with their with their teachers. Um, and so if there's if later in the conversation you want to hear more of a parent perspective, I think we're all equally qualified to comment on that. I know I have a first grader and I have a sophomore and a senior in high school. So ask me anything. I don't know that I'm going to give you a good answer, but you could ask me anything. Um, I know, Mr. Toscano, what grade is your son in this year? He's a freshman. Yeah, this is his freshman year. So he's in, he's attending Cass Lead and he's at football practice right now. And, uh, but he's also on the cheer team. He does both. He's an interesting uh, guy. He's pretty awesome. That is awesome. He was also a social media intern this summer. So we're super excited. Um, ben, I know you, you're my nephew. Ben and I are related, by the way, just in case you didn't catch that earlier. Um, and so his children are my nephews and they are in pre-K four and third grade. Or, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, and also uh, I should have mentioned this earlier too, but I've, you know, I've, I have unique perspective that my wife brings um, she's an assistant principal at uh, the school that both of my sons attend uh, at Mark Twain Dual Language Academy in SAISD. And so, you know, I'm looking at things from a whole bunch of different perspectives these days. <laughs> yeah, good catch, Ben, because you would have been in trouble if you hadn't. I, I would have been in so much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> good catch. And then, Amanda, you you have a college student who just returned to her campus, right? I do. Uh, she's a sophomore at um, a small university in Oklahoma. She's there on a softball scholarship. And believe it or not, she was just diagnosed with COVID. Oh, no, Amanda. Yeah. Oh. Um, she's, she's fine. She is, she's asymptomatic. She doesn't have any symptoms, but she's being quarantined. And, you know, like any teenager, she's looking at this as positive as she can, you know, she's like, I'm going to be doing yoga and I'm going to, you know, she's has these quarantine activities that she's doing, uh, but she's trying to stay positive, but it's just real life, you know? So I felt like I had to add it in there. This is happening all over our country and colleges and universities. So uh, I can't speak as a parent if I didn't add that in there. <laughs> Absolutely. And you have littles too. Yes. I've been, eight-year-old as well who will be go up starting third grade on Tuesday and then I have a four-year-old that will start pre-k as well um and wow. they're rambunctious like Ben's so <laughs> if they have to do virtual I I'm I, I echo you Jen who's gonna do who's gonna do this I don't know <laughs> but they will, they will do well that's my advice throw some food in their direction <laughs> they'll, they'll make it and Mike you have you have school-age kids too Freshman in high school and a junior in high school, uh, yep. and I teach, so I'm I'm getting sort of multiple perspectives uh, on on you know this this challenge that we're living through. Yeah, um, certainly watching my kids uh, do their thing, and and also having to engage you know, 32 students in my research methods class online and meet their needs for live instruction and flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like 
especially college students, high school and college, they're not short on opinions. So I'm sure that you are also navigating like every what everybody wishes were happening. I mean, my six-year-old just goes with it, but the high schoolers, they definitely have some some pretty big opinions on the way things should go. It's like a whole new world. And Joel, I know you have you have little ones too. You you probably take the cake on how many kids we have. I, I'm just going to say that up, up front. Yeah, I have five children. Uh, four of them are in public school. One of them is too young for public school. Uh, uh, he he is our youngest is three, our oldest is fourteen, and a freshman. And um, uh, between all of them, we have eighteen teachers, um, and they are all learning in uh, the house together. Um, what I, I came to San Antonio to start a charter school with Kip, and um, the first teacher I hired, the guy named Eric Cruz who's uh, uh, one of the best teachers I've ever seen. He is now at Alamo Heights High School teaching my 14-year-old in freshman English. And so I was walking through my house and I heard pump through my uh, freshman son's computer, the voice of Eric Cruz. And I thought, this is just fabulous. So uh, San Antonio uh, regularly uh, delivers on it. Uh, reputation as a big city that really feels like a small town. Um, and with that, Jen, why don't we dive in? I, I, I love hearing everybody's background, and it kind of takes us to the first theme for our conversation today, which is kind of ground zero. Where are we today? Uh, what, it, what are people experiencing? Um, that's sort of part one. And then part two is what does this mean for tomorrow, for the future of schools, what are we learning today that can contribute to how we think about schools of tomorrow? And then finally, the last theme is, okay, well, how do we make this happen? Um, and so why don't you go ahead and kick us off uh, with a specific question for our panelists and folks who are on uh, and including panelists, go ahead and chat as we are going through. I'll monitor the chat and jump in uh, to insert people's comments and questions and unmute as needed. Absolutely. And I feel like this part one, we have to go where the practitioners are, right? Like the actual people in the school buildings to describe where we're at right now. And so I'm going to kick this one off to you, Mr. Toscano, because you're probably, um, at least in the K-12 to realm, closest to the practitioners that are carrying out this work. So so what's happened? I mean, we're, we're into a school year now. We're back on campus. I think every single school district in San Antonio is now officially back to school. What's happened? What does this mean for teachers? What does it mean for parents? What does it mean for students? Give us kind of a snapshot of where we're at right now today. Well, the, making the transition from face-to-face -to, -face to an emergency response in the spring to a full-blown remote learning platform that can deliver synchronously, asynchronously, and uh, already in some cases, and in increasingly more cases, even face-to-face -face simultaneously is extraordinary. Um, and it's been a huge lift uh, on the entire system, and it's been a tremendous burden on so many households. Um, we started the year on the 17th uh, fully remote, as did everybody in the county. Uh, and, you know, I'm happy to report that in our, into our third week, we've uh, had uh, over 9,500 students of what we anticipated to be 10,200 engage remotely. 
um, our um, more mature learners seem to be doing a little bit better, in some cases a lot better. Our younger children are struggling a little bit more, as are their parents uh, with work, uh, with proctoring um, and managing their children's day, particularly if they have a number of children, as does Joel. Um, connectivity has been an issue in some of the areas of our district. Uh, while we had Chromebooks for everybody and we had hotspots for everybody who didn't have connectivity, and we've worked with AT&T and Spectrum to get people connected with broadband, uh, who a hotspot wasn't going to be sufficient for. Uh, we still have some 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 dead areas in our community, and so uh, right off the bat, the first few days, we realized that we're going to have to have a reentry plan that is a, a slight bit more aggressive um, than the city hoped. And working with Metro Health and Dr. Wu, she indicated herself uh, after understanding a little bit more about the needs of students that you know there are some students, particularly those with some significant. Uh, disabilities who are more at risk at home than they are here being served. Um, but also we have students with absolutely no means for connectivity that we were going to have to uh, get in the game. And in addition to that, we all know that we serve students who come from very difficult circumstances. Um, we have a program we call EC Cares. There's over 1,100 students who have experienced, who have experienced trauma in the past or recently and uh, we track ACEs scores and, and all of those sorts of things. And a subset of that uh, is in uh, the most unthinkable circumstances in so many ways, basic needs not met and, and learning's just not gonna happen at home until we can provide those wraparound supports. Um, and so our plan included easing in small groups of students. Um, we're probably at about uh, 400 students district-wide that are in our buildings. Uh, we started by bringing them into safe learning zones, uh, which basically just created safe spaces, risk mitigation uh, completely uh, adhered to, uh, but they had technology. Uh, they, they could get uh, fed. Um, they could get some academic support, uh, and they could begin to have some of the social and emotional wraparound supports, uh, you know, and in, in begin to establish that learning routine and, and get back into the swing of things. Uh, on September 8th, we are planning to launch what we're calling an emergency schedule. Um, it's our version of a hybrid, and we're using the term emergency because the commissioner made it very clear uh, that you can't do a hybrid schedule because essentially you can't turn anybody away that wants face-to-face -face instruction. Uh, of course, we're pleased that COVID-19 data is trending in the right direction, uh, but it's going to be here all year. So we're going to have to be responsible as it relates to safety of our staff uh, and, and our students. Uh, but on the 8th, uh, students, that's a small number of students that I've already mentioned, are going to be face-to-face -face every day and continue to be so. Um, and then every student's going to be divided into two groups. And surveys suggest that about 50% of our parents want to bring their kids to school. So if you can follow me here, half of our student body in group one, half of our student body in group two, about 50% of them will actually come face-to-face. -face. So about 25% of our students will be in our buildings uh, at any point in time starting on the 8th, which from a capacity, a C of O capacity standpoint, it's less than 10% of our capacity, 25% of our enrollment, we believe we'll be able to practice and refine our risk mitigation um, protocols, make sure that it's safe, uh, while at the same time beginning to get kids into the building uh, on alternating weeks of three days, uh, one week and two the next, so five days every two weeks. Our plan over time, again, adhering, you know, looking closely into the uh, Metro Health data to inform our decisions, uh, we plan to slowly backfill 
of those numbers in each group up to 50% of our student body. And this would be for families who starting with those that are a little bit more academically at risk up to parents who just need their kid at, at school so they can go to work. Um, and we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed that we'll be able to accommodate everybody face-to-face every day who needs to be here and who wants to be here and not, not breach that 50% of our enrollment number because we ran all of the scenarios, we measured all of our spaces, uh, we moved furniture around, and we believe that if we're really, really, really good at the risk mitigation protocols, that that's our threshold for being able to consistently adhere to faithfully and, and assure our parents that if your kids are in school and our staff, that if kids are in the buildings with us, we can keep them distance. We can keep them in small groups. We can keep them moving through transitions in safe ways um, and provide all the PPE that they need throughout the day along the, on the, and along the way, uh, disinfecting uh, in multiple ways and all taking part in that responsibility. Um, and so that's what we think will be what school looks like, looks like the remainder of the year. Uh, and, and the other uh, subset of that will be remote exclusively all year long, which we'll probably get into that a little bit more, but that's a concern of ours. No matter how uh, proficient students were academically pre-COVID, remote only instruction is not going to be good uh, for any kid in the long run. Um, we're not going to achieve at the same rates academically um, that we would face-to-face. I know that's a harsh reality, but I think that it is a reality. And I think that that is actually a perfect segue into our next question, which maybe um, Mike, you can help us with this. But I mean, what what should what are we expecting? What's it been like from a research perspective for um, students to be engaged in so many hours of online learning for teachers to be to also be engaged in so many hours of online learning is online the same thing as face-to-face learning um what what research is happening behind the scenes what should we expect i know that as educators we have always known and always try to mitigate a summer slide right you leave in you leave in the spring you summer happens no one's in school you come back in august and you're you're kind of like catching up for a second and reviewing but this is more than a summer slide now we're in a covid slide so what is the research telling us uh, so it's it's important to to first recognize that uh research reports that are coming out right now like the the research briefs we're producing at the urban education institute um, and other research institutes around the country are commenting on data that was collected last spring when I would call that emergency pandemic distance learning. It's not just, you know, distance For sure, yes. It, 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 it was sudden dramatic shift, like zero to 100. You know, nobody was doing online to 100% of everybody's doing it online. And, uh, and it, it was, it was very startling and, and all of a sudden, and there was also a lot of uncertainty in the community regarding our public health and our jobs. Um, and so there, there was a lot going on. Uh, but that said, uh, what we learned about learning during that period was that it, it wasn't ideal and most students, uh, felt like they learned less. Uh, certainly in Bear County, uh, 64% of students reported that they learned less. That is not a comment on our teachers or our school districts. That is a comment about 
the fact of life we were all living during the spring of 2020. And going forward, I think we're going to see something very different. Uh, One of the questions that we asked teachers was, did you have any experience with distance learning? Guess how many, (laughs) guess what percent of teachers had any experience? I don't want to guess. Just don't. It it was less than 5%. There you go. Um, I mean, and and then elementary school teachers, it was close to 0%. (laughs) It was totally new. Everybody was doing this just about for the first time, figuring it out. And so, uh, and yet our teachers, God bless them. I mean, really, they, they are there to take care of their students and they work their hearts out, uh, making personal phone calls, playing IT, reinventing their coursework to engage students. And, and they did a really heroic job as well as our school districts who had to figure out the larger systems, right? Getting food out, getting uh, uh, emergency purchases of laptops and and Wi-Fi hotspots. Roland and his counterpart on the western southern region of Bear County, uh, Lloyd at Southwest ISD, need to be given extra credit because they're in semi-rural areas, I mean, and, and rural areas, you know, the, their districts kind of straddle Bear County, but because of their, their distance from downtown, they have extra hurdles to, to overcome in terms of connectivity. And, and, uh, and, and yet, I want to point out, when we ask, uh, and we asked a, a number of questions to students and parents about student engagement, um, in East Central, East Central was the only school district where students and parents said, you know, in my courses, um, I'm getting, I am being engaged. My attention is being grabbed and my learning is being moved forward. A majority of students said that statement. Uh, compared to the whole county, the average is about 30%. And so kudos to East Central. Um, you guys are doing really something special over there. Uh, in our research, uh, which involved close to 2,000 teachers, parents, and students, what we found overall was that, number one, uh, when we asked students and, and their parents what could have been better, you know, the first thing that they said, and, and the, the, the rate is about 57%, they said, well, you know, not much. <laughs> they did a good job considering all that was going on in life. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, but then they did go on to to offer specific recommendations, and I'm happy to get into that going forward. But I think it's it's just really important to understand the the challenge with what we went through during last spring, and and also recognize that I think going forward we're going to see something uh, very different. Uh, there was a mention of the commissioner Morath, um, and how he uh, uh, isn't allowing hybrid. Mm-hmm. And I, I, um, I think we're being a little bit gracious here. I have to say, I think it makes absolutely no sense why a state official in Austin thinks he can make a better decision over there on how we should manage the balance between live, in-person versus online. Our school district's hands should not be cuffed 
they're not being allowed to create a hybrid model. And that is to, that is, that is really hurting uh, what could be possible, right? In this time of necessity, innovation should be allowed to flourish and our school districts and our school leaders should be allowed to figure out what is the right mix for, for their students and their families. And that's not happening right now. Right. I don't, I, you know, one thing I took a course over the summer on blended learning. And one thing that really stuck out to me is that it's not a one size fits all um, kind of style of teaching. It's one size fits one. And if there was anything that I wish other people who are decision makers really would embrace, it's that one size fits one. You can't from any position roll out a plan that envelops every other person because what Mr. Toscano experiences is not what Mr. Martinez experiences. What I experience in my classroom is not what Amanda experiences in her classroom. Like it's not a one size fits all. It really should be a one size fits one. Yeah. And, and really quick, some, some real data to support that idea. Um, While 64% said they learned less during last spring, 11% 11% said they learned more. And, and that's not just like in one school district. Across no, the board, there is a segment of students who really take to online learning. And God bless them. You know, we need to figure out how to you know, meet their needs. But they're, they're, I would say a majority of students are, are in the middle and they, they would like primarily in person, but also some online so they can go at their own pace and explore their curiosity on uh, at their own pace and not be tied to sort of synchronized swimming with everybody else. Sure. sure. I feel like my, my son in general, just, or, or specifically, he has fallen in love with being a manager of his own time and the actual um, record keeping that distance learning has created for him So in Canvas, he's got a record of what's due when, and he doesn't have to manage that. The teacher's doing that, and it's helped him tremendously. And if he had his way, he'd do remote learning for for all time. Um, But I also feel like it's it's those 11%, what was happening before wasn't probably working for them to begin with. And what we could do now is something really, really relevant to them and really different to them. And I feel like teachers, too. I feel like we would, this is an opportunity to solve a whole bunch of problems, not just for an individual learner, but for all our students who are chronically absent, right? That there's content that's on demand now that they can use to get caught up on whatever it was that they were missing. But I'm going to stop because I think I, I see a bunch of heads nodding. So who else wants to jump in? Um, well, I, I will say that it's also not just about personality. I think that's sort of the first thing like, oh, it, it just works with a certain personality. For, for some students, but it's also um, social circumstances. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a student in one of my classes. I'm teaching a, high, we're, we're calling it a hybrid course, but right now it's all online. Un, unless, you know, the virus clears miraculously, we're going to continue to be online. Um, but it is uh, live synchronous learning. I have a student who uh, wrote to me and said, I just got a job, I'm going through job training, and I have to make it through three weeks 
of this training program and it overlaps with class, can you record the lecture for me so that I can view it outside of the job training program? Uh, I really need this job. And, and, and so it's not her personality. It's her, it's her situation. Uh, we, we, we need to allow our schools to, to meet the needs of our families. Yeah, Jen, I wonder, uh, interestingly, you know, I have uh, five children of my own in my household and like my children's engagement actually mirrors your um, percentage trends, Mike, uh, where I have one kid who's just totally flourished. He's in his room playing his saxophone along with, you know, his other honors band members. And he's like flying through his coursework and he doesn't want to change. Um but, you know, there is, as you described, Roland, there is, uh, in short order, going to be a time where people are starting to walk back in the classroom. And, um, Amanda, I know that you, uh, when you were leading the zoo school, you thought very specifically about space and you had a unique design in how you use space. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of the outdoor play component and what you all did in the midst of uh, the, the, the height of the spring pandemic. For sure. So, you know, we are, uh, uh, zoo school is a preschool, so it's a little bit different than, than teenagers navigating the virtual world. But, um, you know, we're a private preschool. Uh, there wasn't a, a huge push for us to return. You know, a lot of parents were just asking when and how. And so that's where the conversation started. We, we, were, we thought about when first and when we couldn't really come up when, when a good time was because no one knew. You know, deadlines kept changing of when uh, schools were going to start. And so then we jumped to the how and the why. And, um, you know, for, for the little ones especially, the social-emotional component of their education is by far what leads most schools for sure zoo school and um we were hearing from the staff uh concerns about you know children not interacting with others um um you know children that were the only child in the household who didn't have anybody to peers to play with um and so when we were thinking about how and why again it was, you know, we're a, a nature-based preschool. The kids spend the majority of their time outside, which, you know, a lot of the emerging research shows that's the safest place to hold um, school and classes is outdoors, uh, where the, you know, the air is, their quality is much better. The ultraviolet rays uh, kill so much stuff, um, you know, not great for our skin, but maybe good for that. And, um, you know, and when we are thinking even to the details of disinfecting and sanitizing, how our kids interact with natural play uh, components, they don't have any traditional playground equipment. So what we had to clean between each classes were things like handrails. Um, and so we felt really good about it in that aspect, even in the design of the school. Wilson Zoo School is a lead platinum building, and each class has its own uh, AC unit. So, you know, the air circulating would be the same within just that class. So when we started thinking about all of these things, we started feeling better. And I think, you know, 
when, when people ask, how did you know when or, or why to go back is when it was when we felt really good about it. And we had those conversations and, you know, we built out this elaborate pandemic policy that, that we knew was a working document and it would change. And we were very consistent on, um, how we we communicated those changes so we we allowed everyone to view the pandemic policy from the staff to the parents and every time we updated it we, we did the same subject line so they knew that it was updated and we just learned that you know given that the fact that we we care deeply about the social emotional development of these kids um we knew we wanted to get back. And then once we had that, we figured out the when. And I tell you what, um, as I'm sure many of you have, have kids or have been around kids, oftentimes when they're dropped off, they have uh, tears from the parents and the kids, right? Uh, they don't wanna go, they wanna stay with mom and dad. We did not have one tear when the kids came back. They were just, and we did a drop off outdoors because. Um, car licensing, we couldn't have visitors on, on campus, and they were taking off their seatbelt, they couldn't wait to get out outside and see their friends, their parents were, you know, just so grateful that not only were their kids so excited to be around their friends um, and get away from kind of the anxiety of the situation, the parents then had time to, you know, knock things off of their list and take care of their self-care um, Kind of things too. And so it just felt good for all of us. I had repeated conversations with the staff. I talked to each one individually before we opened. And I think that was what really made it successful is that we all felt really good about what we were doing. And, um, and it, you know, they're still open to this, to this day, they've been open this whole time. We started off small, kind of like Rolando was saying, uh, we, which at first I was like, man, I wish everybody, you know, could come back. And uh, we started off about 25% of our capacity. But I have to tell you, that was a blessing in disguise because it made us ensure that all of our new practices were implemented with precision and perfection. You know, we all of from how we unloaded the kids to taking temperatures to low ratios to not mixing any groups uh, and shuffling all that around, having a small group to master that with and then slowly build up was uh was really great too. Very helpful. Yeah, I think Amanda, you brought up so many good points. Like I think that working parents and the, the context that students are living in and through are really good motivators for having students um, back on campus. And I know Mr. Toscano touched on that too. I know socialization, especially with young children, um, is critical. Their age group requires that they are playing. I mean, just, just playing, nothing else. Just to be around other people who are playing is really important. But maybe, maybe the thing that I want to touch on first before we talk about the other two is kind of the physical space. And I think, Ben, this might be where you can lean in a little, um, is how, I, I know you said that, you know, you, you're fortunate in that your school is a green school and you, you, each classroom has its own HVAC system. Um, what are some of the other implement, implications, Ben, for what makes a building physically safe to be in? And then, like, what should we be thinking about as we all start to reenter physical spaces? You know, first, um, first I want to, echo something that uh, Dr. Villarreal mentioned a little earlier. Um, and it's, it's really 
this is a great time to recognize the the immense amount of work and effort that has been uh, undertaken and executed by school leaders, school organization leaders, uh, teachers and staff um, to overcome some pretty significant hurdles in such a short amount of time. Um, in many ways, um, it, it's kind of interesting to think about it, but you know, going from one week, there's a hustle and bustle inside of a school building um, to the next week, they're just completely empty, um, completely empty. Uh, it's interesting to think about um, the problems that may arise from that kind of a situation and um, what opportunities start to unfold uh, from that. And so, um, you know, echoing some things that, uh, that Amanda has been talking about, um, there's great opportunity to embrace the outdoors. As we reimagine what it's like to, to reenter our facilities, um, we, we can take inventory of the tremendous assets that we have both in and out of the buildings. Um, and I think our, our school districts and school leaders have done a fantastic job thus far uh, with, with the efforts that uh, they've undertaken to, to inventory what those assets are and um, game plan out and map out uh, what specific upgrades might need to occur with our HVAC systems you know, heightening the amount of filtration uh, and heightening the amount of air exchange in the facilities. Um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of great practice is going on right now, and I think that definitely stands to be recognized. Um, monitoring what what schedules look like, the ebb and flow of uh, transition periods in and around our school facilities, what pick up, pick up and drop off procedures uh, could and should look like to keep people uh, spaced uh, appropriately in distance. And um, so I think there are many, there are many measures that are being taken and considered now that are fantastic. Um, but I think there's, there's something to be said about, um, you know, in the same way that Dr. Villarreal talked about uh, sort of emergency learning in the spring. Um, many of these, many of these practices that are currently being undertaken, I would, I would almost call emergency response to reentry as well. And so they're very sort of acutely focused um, and in general are broadly good practice for building uh, anyways. Um, we should have healthy air exchanges uh, in our facilities pre-COVID. Um, that's that's something that you know we we strive to aim for altogether uh, in the first place, um, but uh, but now I think there's there's sort of more focus on uh, on bringing uh, bringing that uh, to the foreground. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's uh, there's just a, a a great opportunity to sort of reframe uh, and put a little bit of broader context to what some of these uh, emergency responses uh, to reentry sort of fit under. And um, I think uh, we'll probably get in, getting into that in this next segment, um, but how our, how our school facilities are really connected to sort of a broader context of community. Yeah, yeah. so Benjamin, just to pick up on that, you know, um, I, I feel like when I drive uh, around San Antonio or visit other cities, 
a lot of school buildings sort of look the same. Uh, they have the same sort of design. They have the same sort of structure. Um, and my guess is that they look pretty similar to what they look like 30 years ago. Uh, at least they look the same as what I remember being in school. Um, and, you know, I know uh, on the Overland side, but also on the parent side, um, there's there's a, a, a an opportunity for renaissance in how schools are designed um, that's not no, not only driven by creativity. There's like always this creative desire to to engage in a space that's beautiful. Um, but now there's there's sort of this new aspect, which is exactly what you're saying from a from a physical perspective. What happens when we have intermittent pandemic? Um, and are we designed in a way that uh, where buildings can handle it? I've talked to principals and superintendents who have said, "Oh yeah, I had I had uh, to go into my school with a measuring tape and figure out how to redesign my classrooms and my uh, my hallways." Um, and and I thought, you know, when I was a principal, the last thing on my mind was was walking around with a measuring tape probably because I was so nervous that people could figure out that I didn't do so well in geometry. Um, but I think that that's sort of the unique role that now uh, school design architecture can play in what the future looks like. Jen, I want to take just a minute. We've got other folks on the call that aren't panelists that have been a part of the conversation for the last 45 minutes listening in. Um, and Erica, uh, our, our fearless uh, tech uh, guru, do you mind just... Uh, giving people the unmute um, and letting other folks jump in if they have questions or ideas? You know, one of the things that occurs to me as we think about the future, and we're, we're sort of, we, we've gone from talking about what happened, how did we respond from an emergency perspective to um, where are we right now to how do we think about the future? And, you know, obviously none of us really knows what that future is going to look like. Um, I've, I've been thinking about this whole notion of hybrid learning, hybrid working, hybrid. And it, it all sounds really great until you try to do it. And, you know, having people in different spaces, at least when everyone's learning remotely, you're all in the same virtual space. Um, but when you go to hybrid, if you've got people doing the same thing, at the same time, does that actually work? Uh, and so that's going to be our next grand experiment. Um, and then as we think about how that translates into the use of physical space, which you and Ben just began to touch on, um, I wonder if we ought to really rethink why we go to school. You know, what is it that we do when we're there that we can only do when we're there? Obviously, for a little kid, a pre-K kid, maybe even up through you know, third or fourth grade, it's pretty evident that it's, it's everything. But by the time you get to uh, uh, even a later elementary school or certainly high school, um, there's certain things, content may be de delivered better online, but you can't collaborate. You can't do the kinds of interactive learning uh, in the same way when you're person to person. So might we rethink schools as centers for collaboration uh, with content being delivered more uh, through virtual media. I wonder if this is a question that Dr. Villarreal can help us with, um, because I'm thinking about 
what you're learning, um, Dr. Villarreal, what, what uh, UTSA is uncovering around what school looks like in this digital format, but also from your higher ed perspective, because I think higher ed has been a little bit faster at blended learning to begin with. I mean, I, I, I think when I was in uh, my graduate studies, I took a blended course and it was half online and half in person. Um, and so, you know, is that something that can trickle down to the pre-K-12 system? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, but Jen, I want to just make one thing clear. That's not half of the students online and half in person. Right. Yeah, you're right. So what do you think, Doctor? Yeah, I, I, I think that there are some lessons that we've learned that we need to carry forward. And, and in some ways, these uh, represent principles that are true, whether you're in a pandemic or not. Um, I think there, there needs to be uh, a real focus on figuring out how to build relationships between the teacher and students and also student to student uh, in, in group learning opportunities. Uh, we, we heard loud and clear from teachers and students and parents that they really missed the human connection. And, um, and that human connection allowed for learning and engagement and and so that that's a really important piece. Uh, school is is not just about, and we knew, we knew this, but I think it was a big reminder right. during this period that school is not just an intellectual activity. It meets, it fulfills a number of needs, and the the human interaction, the social interaction, social emotional experience is like that magic ingredient that lets everything else really really happen. And so we we need to going forward, redouble our efforts to make that meaningful, whether we're in person or online. Yeah. Um, the, the other piece is that students are more engaged when the, their lessons are active, they're yeah. relevant, they're being challenged. Um, students reported being um, re really un unengaged when uh, they were given worksheets, or other learning activities that were uh, not relevant to their uh, where, where they where they were intellectually, or or they they just weren't connected to the material. Um, they specifically said lessons that were sort of pulled off the shelf from publishing companies uh, were were less engaging than lessons that the teacher crafted for her class for her students. Um, and so I think that project-based learning, which done right, I believe, emphasizes skills development, I think opens up a whole new conversation for how we um, change our curriculum to be more focused on doing than um, content memorization, yeah. which, which are, I, I believe, in our state, uh, and, and this is really the fault of the State Board of Education, Really, you know, uh, take for example math. We're yep. an inch deep and you know miles and miles wide. And so, um, one thing that we've learned is this idea of project-based learning, focus on skills development, active um, uh, learning approaches. Really, it makes a difference in engaging students. So th those are a, a few things. Um, 
I think the other, the other one last one that I want to mention, and again, we, we knew this pre-pandemic, uh, protecting the teacher's time. Yes. Uh, we, we learned from last spring, a big obstacle was having them play um, IT support. And, and that's just, that was the nature of the, the period that, that, that we were all live, living through. But uh, whether it's, you know, that task or some other task, it cuts into the precious, precious time teachers have to engage their students, check in on them as a group or one-on-one, create uh, authentic learning content. Um, so we, we, need to be, we need to be better about supporting our teachers in those ways and also um, help them connect as communities of professionals sharing their learning. Uh, because this is, this is, you know, again, right, what's good for the students is also good for the adults. That sense of connectedness really does matter and will enhance uh, the effectiveness of teachers. Yeah, I especially love, uh, and I think that maybe begs the question that Rick was asking around, what's the purpose of school? Why do we even go to school? What can we accomplish collaboratively while we're there that maybe can't happen independently at home or through um, uh, content on demand? Um, I think, you know, I heard somebody say the other day, we've changed how we do what we do, not why we do what we do. And I think that when... um, teachers are giving students great appropriate assignments, strong instruction, deep engagement, as you were saying, Mike, and have high expectations, students are in general more engaged. And I, I, by the way, I got that from um, TNTP, which is the uh, new teachers project, their opportunity myth that this is why students aren't achieving at levels that we expect for them to achieve or that we strive for them to achieve at. Um, and so I think this is one of those times where we are really, I, I feel like this is the year of the teacher where the teacher is really at the, the forefront of everything we're talking about, because you can have whatever curriculum you want to have. You can do it any way you want to do it. It can be in person or virtual, but at the end of the day, the teacher needs the time. The teacher needs the curriculum. The teacher needs the support of the state board of education, the support of the district leaders, the support of the commissioner and the support of the community, or you have nothing. There's nothing left if you don't have those things. Yeah, and just to jump in on that, Jen, you know, I just I, I think that here we are talking about how schools can change, and um, my belief has always been when I was a principal, when I was supporting the development and um, resourcing of new schools, that really it's the man or woman in the classroom that inspires, that unlocks, that challenges, that pushes, uh, that's the right amount of of respect and likability and love all at the same time. And um, we, we I think, are in a, in a stage where it's not just that our physical school buildings need to change. We need to think differently about that. But the preparation of teachers need to change. You know, right now, uh, the majority of teachers that get into the classroom are prepared through an alternate route program that is uh, a very short uh, very uh, low-level sort of program before they get to work with students. There's, uh, you know, 48% go through university, go through a rigorous program to get in the classroom. And we are now in a place where that, it, it, that was training and support for one type of teaching, which is in-person teaching. Um, 
And we can have the same uh, expectation of our teachers, high levels of, of, of expectation for them in terms of what they do in the classroom in two dimensions, which is training to be in person and training to be in an online environment. And I, I actually think that that's going to require teacher educators. That's going to require teacher preparation programs to operate, to design coursework that's different. And in the same way that we're asking, Mike, to your point, in the same way that we're asking uh, students, are we wanting students to really engage in a project-based experiential learning, that there's going to need to be a much larger volume of coursework and experience and practical setting for teachers to practice in the virtual context and practice in the in-person context in their uh, field placement. Yeah, I, I just want to say that uh, teachers are very important, but you know, they're, they're, it's like Russian nested dolls. There's the teacher. That's the perfect analogy. A, a school with a principal and that and those schools are inside of a school district with superintendent and, and the school districts are inside of a state system that's governed by the state legislature, the commissioner and the state board of education. It, it's really complicated. I, I, I but I think, um, you know, I think we need to, I think we just we we need to give you know, in, especially in this time for me it's like let's give our people on the front line flexibility you know mm -hmm. and I feel really strongly about this um, given decisions that have been made at the state level uh, we we mm -hmm. really allow our school districts and schools to have flexibility to invent to to you know, create these outdoor learning experiences to figure out what the uh, real purpose of bringing students together in the same building is versus what they can do online from home or as they travel to, um, you know, their job because a lot of our high school students work. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that work experience is a really positive thing in many of their lives. Um, and, and so we need to allow that local control, which Texas was once known for, <laughs> to, to really be true. I really love, uh, I really love what you just said there, uh, Dr. Villarreal. I think there's a tremendous opportunity for an educator to sort of co-author their learning environment altogether as well. I think one of the amazing values of the physical space is that peer-to-peer -peer interaction uh, but if this is also an opportunity to reimagine what education looks like or what a learning environment can look like or should look like, it's a great opportunity to say our physical assets need to be a teaching tool. They need to be um, the kind of thing that our teachers, our administrators can really leverage beyond four walls and a roof. Um, and I think uh, pre-COVID, you know, looking... So Joel's, Joel's point earlier, um, pre-COVID, our learning environments were just that, um, four walls, a roof, in a lot of ways, sort of uninspired. And I think now there's a tremendous opportunity to reimagine uh, what those learning environments can be nuanced uh, by community. Um, and Jen, I think you said this earlier too, it's not a one-size-fits-all, it's a one-size-fits-one. And I think um, every district, um, every schoolhouse um, has a community that looks different from one another. 
And I think that there's real advantage, uh, there's real advantage in uh, leveraging not just what the physical assets of a schoolhouse are, uh, but what the physical assets of a unique community are and how that plays into um, the type of, uh, of learning that happens within the walls of the school. Um, so, yeah. You know, that makes me think a lot of times when I talk in support of nature-based education, I talk to people about their childhood um, memories of spending time outdoors and what they did in school and out of school. And in my generation, you know, I went into school, I sat down at the desk, I did the worksheets, I did the tests. And then after school, I ran home, threw my backpack into the house and got on my bike and took off. And to me, that's real where the real application of learning happened was when I was out exploring and discovering the pond down the street, the playground at the school without the supervision of the teachers. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, and so when I started teaching and that's really when, you know, when I started teaching, um, that's when, to me, a big shift in our society happened when 9-11 happened, when we, you know, really became for the first time in American history, um, scared about not knowing who our neighbors were. And we started keeping our kids inside. And so, it, you know, I just think it's time for us to rethink this. I mean, this is the perfect time, education. You know, we have kids that go to school, they sit down, they do the worksheets, they do the tests, and they come home and they sit down and they do the worksheets and they <laughs> prepare for the tests. And they don't have that true, authentic application of, of their learning, um, which, uh, Ben, I think goes to your point where it doesn't have to be the four walls anymore, just figuring out how they can apply learning in different ways. And, you know, um, this hasn't been touched on yet, but, you know, the physical development component that goes along with academic um, learning, you know, and, and they can do so much in the virtual world. I completely agree. But, um, you know, you know, crossing that midline, climbing a tree, throwing a ball, all of that supports reading and math readiness. And so um, even my, you know, eight-year-old who I, I Ben can um, probably <laughs> agree with me, needs that time to, to climb trees and, you know, scuff up the knees and roll on the around on the floor with his brother, again, in support of um, his academics as well. And also, I was thinking about, uh, as to Joel's point about, you know, the teachers, there's so much of what happened during this time that made me realize, you know, gosh, this feels right. Gosh, this feels good. One of them being um, my calendar completely opened in spring because I wasn't giving tours. I wasn't having guests. What did that mean? I got to spend really good time with my staff. I got to check on them. And I thought, you know, this feels right. This is what we should have been doing all along, right? And just, um, you know, when a staff member came in and said, I, I don't really feel good. I kind of have a stomachache and headache. What, were, what was the first word out of my mouth? You need to go home. Why, was, why is that a new concept? You know, we even started a new policy where um, if a student goes home, and they have a sibling in the school, they both go home because if they have, a, even if it's a stomach bug or something, there's a good possibility that their sibling is gonna catch it as well. So now when one kid's sick, we send the siblings home as well. Why are we not doing this? It's for you know, the health of them and their peers, but we've been so consumed with you know, hours and studies and academics that we don't really allow for some of those things that feel really good. 
Yeah, Amanda, I think the same is true um, in so many ways from a building perspective too, because I think um, looking at looking at facilities pre-COVID, our preoccupation wasn't necessarily about the health and well-being of occupants. Um, and now there's a heightened focus on it. Yeah. Where pre, pre-COVID, um, pre-COVID, it was generally you're you're above and beyond um, if you're thinking about the indoor air quality of space. You're above and beyond what building standard is. If you're thinking about the health and happiness of uh, of a student, you know, you know, if you're thinking about a child's delight when you're designing a building, um, in, in a lot of ways you're going above and beyond what the practice even calls for. Um, and now, you know, that has come to the foreground in so many meaningful ways as a key priority um, in the design and reimagination of learning environments. Um, and so there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of really great um, uh, building standards that were at one time very aspirational um, and now at this time have become um, in a lot of ways, what I think will be will be new baselines uh, for the quality of learning environments that we design. Um, one of one of my sort of key interests is how we can design educational spaces that um, are not only socially just, culturally rich, and ecologically restorative, but also accomplish uh, the uh, the educational goals, the graduate aims of, uh, of these schools and um, accomplish uh, you know, being a true tool uh, to the teacher, to the staff, um, to the administrators and um, are a place that, that students feel safe and that students feel belong to them. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, those, that sort of, those sort of, uh, building standards will become uh, a new baseline where we're looking at um, how many, how much access to outside do we have? Uh, There's something fundamental about humanity that requires interaction with being outdoors altogether. Um, We are, uh, we are creatures of nature and uh, we need views to outside to trees. We need daylight to thrive. Um, what, uh, in what ways uh, is our building um, operating with a healthy amount of air exchange? What is the filtration rate? I mean, all of these are, the, these are things that were great to think about pre-COVID, but we have to be thinking about them post-COVID um, in, in, in meaningful ways. Well, team, um, I, this is a, a great virtual happy hour. Um, the following, we had uh, virtual drinks that we could share. Uh, I could stay here all night, but I do have some children that want me to help them with dinner. Uh, so I'm going to encourage us all to close with uh, a parting thought uh, or a key takeaway or one key uh, idea that you're taking from today. And I'm just going to share mine. And it's going to build on, uh, I think, a couple of comments. Um, you know, I think that we, we have this, we're in this critical moment where we could be, uh, we could, we could shift to fear and compliance because of, of, uh, here's, here's all the big challenges. Here's what the pandemic is forcing us into. 
or we could go into creativity and freedom. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that your point, Amanda, about 9-11 um, and people kind of crouched in fear, I think that we have the opportunity to, um, instead of being compliance and fear-driven, to be creative and expansive in our thinking and incorporate all the things that uh, require safety. Um, so anyway, um, I'm going to uh, stomp on fear and move to creativity. Um, and I'm going to tag the next person. Uh, and I'm going to tag Roland because Roland might have a parting thought, but he was also getting some questions from Mike. You guys were about to get me on a soapbox when you started visioning about what education could be. I've spent 25 years and plan to spend many more trying to do right for kids and try to make learning experiences about their future, not my past. And when you say fear and compliance, uh, you're talking about an education system that is driven by the scoreboard, which is nothing more than foundational literacies that don't transfer into anything meaningful, much less engaging for children. And so my parting thought is we cannot waste a freaking crisis. We have an opportunity to ha- to say here to say the hell with what once was, and let's do what is right for kids. Let's create experiences where they can apply what they're learning in meaningful ways that excite them, that help them discover what they're good at, what they're passionate about, what they're interested in, and let's connect that to some path forward in the meaning into a meaningful future for them. I believe schooling is about academic achievement, but it's also about employability in the end game. And if school doesn't mimic the world of work, at least today, which is hard to project what it's going to be for them, uh, then we're fooling ourselves. And as um, Rick mentioned earlier, you know, he started getting me thinking about brick and mortar, which I've been thinking a lot about. I know we've got architects in the, in the room here, but brick and mortar, if it's not good for retail, is it really good for school? I mean, learning happens anytime, any place outdoors for God's sakes, with other people doing real stuff. Knowledge by itself after Google, you're kidding me, right? If you can, here's what I tell teachers. If a kid can Google a a, a good response to the assignment you gave them, you're wasting everybody's time. (laughs) Okay, that's good. That's a tough act to follow. Roland, who are you tagging next? I am tagging, uh, let's go with uh, Amanda. Yeah, you know, during like the peak of this this time in the spring, I was having a conversation with my family. Um, we arrange an age, and so we were talking about our generation and how we um, align with what, you know, society says about our generation. And so, you know, I wondered what my what generation my three-year-old would fall under, and so I googled it just in a you know, friendly family conversation, and it really spoke to my heart. Our youngest kids, they're in a generation called Generation Alpha, and it's projected to be the most transformational generation of our time. If that doesn't give you hope right now, I don't think anything can. So our kids are going to grow up, and they're going to learn from this, and they're going to grow from this, and they're going to do great things because of this. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind, too. And I'm going to tag, um, let's see here, Michael. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for including me. Uh, and 
I, I want to say, Amanda, that was really inspiring. Actually, in, in Roland, I sent in a, a silent chat. Thank you for sharing your words and your passion. Uh, I, I think we're, we're, we're with leaders like you, um, we're headed in the right direction. I, I believe this is the time to not just have words, but also take action ourselves as adults. We're the stewards of this future we want to usher in for our children. And that means we need to vote. We need to raise our voices. And we need to call people out when we think they are wrong. And uh, I believe uh, there's a lot of good that is happening in our public schools. And we need to allow them and support them in continuing down that path of innovation. Uh, we, we have an upcoming legislative session. Uh, and if the beliefs don't change, uh, we're going to see a, a very significant budget cut to our public schools. Um, and, and, and it's really going to be a setback. Um, I'm very concerned about that. Uh, what can we do to make a difference? Uh, elect representatives who believe public education is an essential institution to our society, no less than the voting booth. Public schools are that important. And so we need to make sure we vote for elected officials who share that belief. Um, where they're, they're, Our kids are counting on us and, and we need to not let them down. And I will pick, I'll pick Rick. You know, as an architect, I'm listening to all this and I'm trying to imagine how do we take these ideas and create spaces that facilitate this kind of education that are flexible enough that a teacher, an educator can come in and really fit the educational environment to the experience of that kid. Um, how do we take both virtual and physical space and work them together? And how do we blow up the walls of the, the school? So it's not just going out into nature, but it's actually going out into our cities and experiencing life uh, as a part of our educational experience. And, and I think that will benefit both. It won't just benefit the kids in the schools. It's going to benefit our community. It's going to breathe life and economic life into our communities because education is at the heart of what it means to be a neighbor. It's at the heart of what it means to be a community. It's at the heart of our life together, and we have got to invest in that. And I am going to pick Jennifer. Well, gosh, I you know what? I think I'm gonna I'm gonna take my time to wrap it up, but I'm gonna I want to hear from Ben before we do that. So Ben, I'm gonna kick it to you, and then I'll, I'll try to do a quick summary. Thanks, Michael. I I really appreciate that call to action. Um, I think this is the only way we can see change, and Roland. Um, certainly appreciate that same call, um, and Amanda appreciate the the inspiration. I'm so thankful again to to be in this conversation with you all. I think uh, my my takeaway is that we can't do this alone. Um, we're in this together uh, to accomplish a, a shared vision for our community centered around education and centered around the lives of the kids that pass through our halls uh, and through our doors. And um, so I, I, um, I'm, happy, uh, I'm happy to be in some ways a bridge um, to connect uh, what physical space 
can provide. Um, and and um, yeah, I'm thankful for today, Jen. Thank you. I I can't um, say enough about the group that we've convened today. I I admire you all. I respect you all, and I've been profoundly inspired by the things that you've said tonight. And I'm going to repeat a few of them. Um, one, Mr. Toscano said, we cannot waste a freaking crisis. Um, and I think, yeah. Got excited. Sorry. No, it's so true. We cannot waste a freaking crisis. Um, and then the second thing is that, you know, we should be working toward a more socially just, um, ecologically fit, culturally rich environment. And that was from Ben. And those two things alone, I think we could stand on from here on out. Um, my spin would be that this is the year of the teacher and this is the year of educators in general. And, you know, when I say teacher, I always say it's teacher with a capital T. It's not just the people in the classrooms. It's everybody that's standing around the teacher in the classrooms. Like, um, Mike said, uh, the whole nest uh, doll of, of everybody who is around the teacher. Um, I, I feel like now's our moment to be recognized as essential workers and nation builders and a workforce that builds the workforce. And I think that in order for us, like this is our moment to say, hey, without us, our workforce is diminished. We need what we need. And that changes. It changes on the context that we're living in. It changes on the day, on the time. But we need what we need. And we've got to show up in voting. We've got to show up at the tables that we're invited to sit at um, because it matters. The work that we do matters. And so that, to me, is the summarization of tonight. And I know I am inspired um, and so thank you. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. And thank you for Overland um, for having the vision to bring together thought leaders and to think through how space and design impacts what we're doing every day in our city and in our schoolhouses. I, I just I can't share my appreciation enough. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miseducation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.